the world is getting smaller and smaller. And as estate planners, we're seeing a lot more clients coming from abroad or maybe clients that own property abroad. And because of that, we need to be aware of cross-border issues when it comes to estate planning and taxation. In this episode, we will be discussing the basics of international estate planning and tax with our guest, Chris Nason. My name is Anna Solomon. I'll be your host for this episode of Trust Me. Welcome to Trust Me, the official podcast of the Trust and Estate Section of the California Lawyers Association. The Trust and Estate Section seeks to further the knowledge of practitioners through updates and a wide range of educational opportunities. In addition, the section monitors and participates in the formation of laws and regulations that impact the trust and estates field and represents section members in the governance of the California Lawyers Association. And now, to your host of today's podcast. So welcome to Trust Me, the official podcast of the Trust and Estates section of the California Lawyers Association. We have a very special guest today, Chris Nason, who is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery, located in their San Francisco office. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Anna. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start off by you telling us a little bit about your background? Sure. I graduated from Yale Law School a little while ago and started practicing in New York. I was there for about five years and then realized that California is a much better place to be. And so came out and I'm a, as you mentioned, a partner at the San Francisco office of McDermott, Will & Emery, which is one of the premier estate planning firms. I'm also the managing editor of International Estate Planning, which is a 30 chapter volume published by LexisNexis. It's updated annually, provides a resource for cross-border planning. And I co-teach the class on trusts and estates at Stanford Law School. Sounds like you are the right person to discuss this topic with. And why don't we just jump in? So one of the questions we always ask in an initial planning meeting with the client is whether or not the person is a U.S. citizen. Right. And this is a very critical question to ask. It's always on my checklist and it should be on every planner's checklist. Can you give us a broad overview on why this question is so important? Sure. Citizen is shorthand for someone who's fully a U.S. person. A citizen is treated as a resident for income tax purposes and a domiciliary for transfer tax purposes. And so when you're dealing with only U.S. citizen, all of the usual rules, the income tax rules, transfer tax rules, informational tax reporting rules apply. It's when you don't have citizens that you encounter different rules that can affect the taxation or reporting of distributions from donors or to beneficiaries and can sometimes affect who can serve as executor or even guardian. That's a good point. And how about just tell us in very broad terms, how is a U.S. resident taxed? So uh, as we know, unfortunately, U.S. residents are subject to U.S. income tax on their worldwide income. So I pay U.S. income taxes on the money I earn here in San Francisco. But if I had income generated from other countries, I'd pay full U.S. income taxes on that income as well. And how about for non-U.S. residents in general? How does uh, taxation work? They're generally only subject to income taxes on two types of income. Income effectively connected to a U.S. trader business. So you have a business here, you're going to pay taxes on that business's income. And also something called fixed, determinable, annual, or periodic income. Things like dividends, certain types of interest, rents, and royalties. 
So I want to go back real quick because you talk about, you know, like residency, right? So what does that mean exactly? So if I have a green card, am I a U.S. resident? I am, aren't I? You are, yes. All citizens are residents and a green card is green, but the technical name of that is a permanent resident card. And so you're also a resident with a green card. And so no matter how long you're in the U.S. or where you live in the world, you're going to be paying that full U.S. income tax on your worldwide income. In general, everybody else is subject to a day counting test. It's a very objective test that looks at the amount of time you physically spend in the U.S. The way that works is you, at the end of the year, add up all the days that you spent in the U.S. in that year, and then add to that number a third of the days that you spent in the prior year and a sixth of the days in the year that you spent before that, and you get a number. And if that number is 183, you're considered an income tax resident for that year. And so as a practical matter, that means unless an exception applies, you can spend about 120 days in the US in each year without falling afoul of that test. But if you spend more than that, you become a US income tax resident. And so people keep extraordinarily detailed records and logs and budget their days because it can be the matter of going five minutes over at midnight suddenly means your worldwide income is subject to US income taxes at you know the highest marginal rates. So also, there's a difference between residency and domicile, right? What's the difference and why does it matter? Residency is an income tax concept. It affects what you're going to pay income taxes on, and it can change you know, from year to year. Domicile is your home. It's where you, you know, have decided to sort of permanently live. And that affects transfer taxes, so the gift, estate, and GST taxes. And that test is a lot more subjective. You know, people in California encounter this a lot when someone tries to leave California. You look at, is someone a California domiciliary? And the test is similar. You know, where are your things? Where are your social connections? Where are your biggest houses? So that's a good way to look at it. I never thought of it that way. So similar to when we have clients that want to move out of California, that same sort of similar domicile test, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and if once you're a U.S. domiciliary, transfer taxes apply. Okay, so now that we've talked about the different classifications of residency, domicile, let's talk about why this matters. Let's go back to income tax. We talked a little bit about it before. So how does it work again for non-residents? So specifically, let's say royalties, interests, and dividends. So how do non-residents get taxed on these types of income? So unless a treaty applies, and there's a lot of income tax treaties that change this, these sort of things are generally taxed at a 30% flat rate with no deductions and withheld at the source, which means that if you're a non-resident receiving them, the bank will take off 30%, send it to the treasury, and send you the remaining 70%, nothing for you to do. In practice, most interest isn't taxed because there are exceptions for bank deposit interest. You know, The government wants to encourage people to bank with U.S. banks, and also for portfolio interest which is debt that meets certain requirements, most importantly, that it be in registered form. But how about other types of income? So how about if someone owns a property that's located in the U.S. and that earns income, or how about a business that's located in the U.S. that has income? How's that taxed? The income from the business would generally be considered effectively connected income. It's taxed at usual rates and usual ways and the non-resident would file an income tax return reporting the income on a form 1040 nr a non-resident tax return well that seems 
pretty straightforward, but are there any other points that you want to bring up in the realm of income taxes for non-U.S. persons? Well, the one big thing that we've not talked about so far is capital gains. Capital gains are generally not taxed when received by a non-resident, which makes it really advantageous to invest in U.S. capital markets. There's also a special withholding tax for sales of U.S. real property. So whenever you buy or sell a home, you'll have to tick the box about FERPTA, and that's a 15% withholding rate. Those are good points, and I guess it's not as straightforward as I said it was in the beginning. <laughs> Nothing ever um, is. I know, exactly. Well, okay, so that's you know basically income taxes in a nutshell. Let's talk about transfer taxes. And what I mean by that is estate and gift taxes. And as we know, the United States has a federal estate and gift tax. There's also some states that have their own separate estate tax, meaning that if somebody dies owning over a certain amount in assets, then those assets over that amount gets taxed at roughly a 40% rate. So for U.S. citizens, that threshold amount which is called the estate and gift tax exemption. At least in 2023, that's almost $13 million. And that is closely tied to gift taxes. And generally, any gifts made during your lifetime gets counted towards that exemption amount as well. So if you gift over the exemption amount, then you have to pay gift taxes. And that's just a little table setting to sort of have you, Chris, as the expert, talk about this in the international sense. So let's talk about gift taxes. My first question. So if I am a U.S. citizen or if I'm domiciled in the U.S., okay, and I gift assets to someone... I have to consider gift taxes, not just for my assets in the US, but for my worldwide assets, right? So for example, let's say I have real estate in Spain and I want to gift that to my son. Do I have to file a gift tax return? Yes, you do. Assuming that real estate's worth more than the $17,000 annual exclusion amount, It's a taxable gift regardless of where it's located. Okay. Um, Also, because it's Spanish real estate, there's probably Spanish inheritance tax issues for him to think about. Oh, yeah. So you have to think about rules in the country where the property is located, right? That's right. Now, what if I'm a non-U.S. person? When would I ever have to pay U.S. gift taxes? Only if you're badly advised, Anna. Intangible property and so that stocks and bonds and interests and LLCs isn't subject to U.S. gift taxes, no matter where those things are located. The only two things that are subject to U.S. gift taxes are tangible personal property that's located in the U.S. when it's given. So if I want to give you a nice painting and I'm a non-resident alien, I can take the painting out of the U.S. and transfer it to you there. And also real estate that's actually physically located in the U.S., that's a little harder to, to take out of the country. A little harder to take out of the country, yeah. but you could give cash or for other reasons, the real property would probably be in some sort of corporation and that the transfers of those shares wouldn't be subject to gift tax. Got it. Well, okay, so you mentioned cash, right? So we've been talking about real property, tangible, personal property. Is cash considered tangible personal property? How is cash usually treated? This is a great question, especially for estate planners who like to debate these things. But cash in the form of bills, a suitcase full of money, is tangible personal property. Interesting. And so we advise people for all sorts of reasons not to bring in a duffel bag of cash and and hand it away in the U.S. 
there's an open question about wire transfers. Electrons are somewhat intangible, but the transmission of a wire transfer into U.S. bank is also arguably the transfer of cash. And so well-advised clients will either make their cash transfers to foreign banks owned by the beneficiary so that the cash transfer takes place overseas, or they'll give treasury bonds for which there's a specific exemption. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that there was that debate about cash. You would think that it's pretty straightforward, right? You would, although people like to debate all sorts of angels on the head of a pin sort of things. <laughs> and then let's talk about the exemption amount and annual exclusion amount. So do non-U.S. persons get an exemption amount, right? For U.S. persons, it's $13 million, right? And also for the annual exclusion amount, which is usually $17,000. How does that work? So you get the $17,000. Per year? Per year, per person. But you don't get the $13 million. But again, because the gift, it's really hard to stumble into the gift tax. So this isn't usually a, a stumbling block for people who aren't U.S. persons or aren't U.S. domiciled. Okay, that's a good point. And how about gifts from a U.S. person to a spouse who is a non-U.S. person? Does the unlimited marital deduction apply? It does not. And it's actually a little bit different here because the unlimited marital deduction only applies to gifts to someone who is a U.S. citizen. Mm. So it doesn't matter that your spouse is a green card holder, a resident, domiciled here, has lived here for 50 years. If that person isn't a citizen, the unlimited marital deduction doesn't apply. And you're limited to a special $175,000 annual exclusion amount, which is adjusted for inflation. So that's gift taxes. Let's talk about estate taxes, since, of course, that ties into gift taxes. Now, for non-citizens and non-U.S. you know, US persons, when does the U.S. estate tax apply? So the U.S. estate tax applies not on worldwide assets, but just on assets that have a, a U.S. situs, are deemed to be located in the U.S. And is there a credit or an exclusion for estate taxes for non-U.S. people? There is, but it's a shockingly low $60,000 oh. that isn't adjusted for inflation. So to the extent you have any U.S. site as property and you're not domiciled here, you're at real risk for stumbling into that 40% state tax. Wow. So $60,000 compared to the almost $13 million, right? Yeah, it's a big difference. Yeah. Let's talk about the term U.S. situs versus non-U.S. situs property. Can you give us some examples of each? Sure. So the same things that are included in the gift tax, real property, tangible personal property located in the U.S., but also, most importantly, stock in a U.S. corporation. So you can give away your stock during your life because it's an intangible asset, but you can't hold it at death. Oh, because it's considered U.S. U.S. situs for estate tax purposes. Interesting. Okay. There's also a couple interesting exceptions. Works of art that are on loan for an exhibition, even though they're tangible personal property and located in the U.S., aren't subject to a state tax because we want to encourage people to you know, let MoMA borrow their Picassos and not worry about 40% estate tax if they happen to die while MoMA has it. Also, bank deposits and debts that are paying portfolio interest, also not subject to a state tax. Again, for the reason that we want to encourage people to bring in money to invest in the U.S. I didn't know that about the art. So if it's loaned, 
somewhere it's not technically considered U.S. situs. Correct. Right. Okay. Right. So to confirm, let's go back to my property in Spain example. So as a U.S. person, estate tax is imposed on worldwide assets, right? So again, if I own real property in Spain, then that gets counted as a property for United States estate tax purposes. Is that right? That's right. So as a U.S. person, all of your worldwide assets will get included in determining your estate tax. In Spain, again, you'll probably pay an inheritance tax when that passes, and the U.S. will allow you a credit for foreign death taxes. There may also be treaty provisions that apply, although there isn't an estate tax treaty in Spain. So it really depends on where the property is located, and you need to make sure that you do the right amount of research for treaties and also the laws of that country, right? (laughs) That's right. It's not just the U.S. rules that apply. It's the foreign rules and the treaties that, that bridge them. Okay, so now I want to go back to my marital deduction question because, you know, one big benefit of estate and transfer tax planning is the unlimited marital deduction, which essentially, if you're a married couple, you can delay paying the estate tax by giving everything to your spouse, and then you don't have to pay taxes until the second death. Now, is this available for non US spouses? For gift tax purposes, you said no, but how about for estate tax purposes? For estate tax purposes, there's a very limited exception. You can't make direct gifts to your non-U.S. citizen spouse. And again, the idea here is with the unlimited marital deduction is that if I die and give everything to my spouse, eventually the spouse will die and the treasury will collect its money. But Congress is worried that if I have a non-citizen spouse, that non-citizen spouse will leave the country, die abroad, and never be subject to the estate tax. So you can't give anything outright, is what you're saying. That's right. To the spouse, and there's no deduction. But And then you mentioned an exception, and I've heard of the term QDOT. Can you tell me what that is exactly? Are you familiar with a Q-tip? Yes. So a QDOT is similar to a Q-tip in that it has the same requirements that all income must be paid annually to the spouse and that the spouse can be the only beneficiary during the spouse's lifetime. But it has two other important requirements. The first is that it must have a US trustee, a bank or someone who's put up a a really big bond to ensure that these estate taxes eventually get paid. Also, when principal comes out of the QDOT, unless it's for emergencies, it's taxed at an immediate 40%. So if I get this straight, just to confirm, can't leave assets outright to a non-US citizen, the marital deduction will not apply. But it seems like if I, I can leave it in trust for them, the marital deduction can apply, and I just need to meet these requirements of the QDOT, and also they have you know separate tax rules, like just what you said about the principal being taxed at 40%. Right? That's exactly right. So your, your spouse isn't totally out of luck, but a lot more limited than your U.S. citizen spouse would be. And also, we can't talk about transfer taxes without talking about the generation skipping transfer tax, GST taxes. Just general overview. Can you tell us how that works for non-U.S. persons? It's actually extraordinarily beneficial because the GST tax only applies when there's a taxable gift 
or when there's a transfer that would be subject to estate taxes. And so to the extent a foreign person is making taxable gifts or dying with U.S. Citus property, GST tax applies in the usual ways. But if you aren't subject to gift tax or estate tax, the property is not subject to GST tax and becomes fully exempt. So you could have foreign parents set up a trust in the U.S., contribute assets worth $100 million, and you have a $100 million GST-exempt trust. It's a great planning opportunity for people yeah. who want to onshore money. Yeah, that is really interesting. And would you say it's an exempt trust or it's like a GST nothing trust? It would be a GST-exempt trust because the GST taxes wouldn't apply to it. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. And, and so now let's switch gears and talk about trusts. Can you generally explain the difference between a U.S. trust and a foreign trust? Sure. A U.S. trust is a trust that's treated as a U.S. resident for income tax purposes and generally meets what's called the court and the control test. Um, and a foreign trust is anything that doesn't meet these specific requirements. Okay. Well, let's talk about these tests. So let's go over the court test first. What does that mean exactly? The court test means that a court in the U.S. needs to have the ability to supervise the trust. So the trust needs to be administered somewhere in the U.S., and a court somewhere in the U.S. needs to have ability to hear cases related to the administration and issue orders and judgments related to that. Essentially, the trust needs to be governed by the law of a U.S. state. Okay, and then how about the control test? The control test means that U.S. persons can control all substantial decisions of the trust. And so decisions about investments, beneficiary distributions, who can serve as an office holder, all have to be controlled by U.S. persons. And so sometimes you'll see a trust that has three trustees, two U.S., one foreign. And if those trustees need to act unanimously, then it fails the control test because that foreign trustee essentially has a veto power. If, on the other hand, they act by majority, then the U.S. people can control all the decisions. So if they have to act by majority, two out of three control, and the two U.S. people control. But if they have to act unanimously, then you're right. The, the foreign person has the, the veto power. That's what yeah. you, you yeah, mean that, for the control exactly. test, right? That's right. Okay. That's a good way to, th to think about it. Okay. So just to confirm, because we talked about the court test, you talked about the control test. If a trust fails either one of these tests, then maybe it's not a U.S. trust, which means that it might be a foreign trust. That it, am I getting that right? That's right. Any trust that doesn't meet both the court test and the control test is a foreign trust. So it's only a U.S. trust if a court can exercise jurisdiction and U.S. people can make all substantial decisions. Why is this important? Because I know the taxation of trusts, it's its own different animal. You know, I don't really want to get into too much detail, but, you know, we don't have time for that today. But can you give us just sort of a general overview on why that's important? Sure. So as you know, trusts are generally taxed the same way individuals are. And so a U.S. trust is taxed the same way a U.S. individual is, subject to tax on its worldwide income at, at U.S. rates. A foreign trust, on the other hand, is taxed the same way a non-resident individual is. So no capital gains, the 30% withholding tax, which seems beneficial. 
But distributions from foreign trusts to U.S. people are subject to an extraordinarily punitive throwback tax and interest charge that more than equalize this benefit. It's similar to the throwback tax that you see when non-California trusts make distributions to California beneficiaries. Yep, yep. But it's a lot worse. And so people will often plan into U.S. trusts if they're going to be making distributions to U.S. beneficiaries. So that's interesting. And I think we have a few more minutes left, but I want to get into filing requirements. So I think we can spend hours again talking about this and all the different information returns and different forms that we have to fill out in certain situations. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to talk about today? So how about maybe the top three common ones that you see, what people should be looking out for? The U.S. government is extraordinarily curious about things and require lots of reporting, even if they don't necessarily have income tax consequences. I think the biggest one is the Form 3520, which is to report, among other things, foreign gifts. So your grandmother in Spain gives you some money. You need to file a report, a 3520, with your tax return reporting that gift to the government. If you happen to have foreign assets, so you have a small bank account in a foreign country, or you have other assets in a foreign country, or you even have signature authority. You don't own the assets, but you have signature authority over the account. You need to file something called an FBAR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the penalties for not doing that can be draconian, you know, up to 50% of the value of the assets. 50% of the value of the assets that's right. for failing to file an FBAR. Okay. So that's a good one to mention. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so don't do that because there's no taxes otherwise imposed. It's just not reporting it. Yeah. And then if you have interests in foreign corporations, foreign partnerships, they're subject to tax regimes that could take, again, an entire program. But those need to be reported on Form 5471 for corporations or 8865 for partnerships. I think those are three big ones, the 3520, the FBARs, and 5471 or 8865, depending on what you own. Is that right? That's right. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining us. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You know, Chris has given us his contact information. So please see the show notes for that information. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Trust Me. Trust Me is a production of the Trusts and Estate Section of the California Lawyers Association and produced by Foley Mara Studios. For further information, please go to calawyers.org, click on Sections, Trusts and Estates, and look for the Education tab to learn about upcoming live programs, online CLE and webcasts, as well as a broad range of low-cost self-study programs. Many of our guests are contributors to the Trusts and Estates Quarterly, the official publication of the section. Benefits of membership include the quarterly, along with email case alerts and other opportunities to stay current in the trusts and estates field. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss our next episode. And thanks for listening to Trust Me.